0: Four point six billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. Five hundred and forty-two million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. Two hundred and fifty-one million. Ninety percent of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. Sixty-five
1: million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs.
0: Fifty-five million. Primates appear. Two point three million. Pleistocene. Two hundred thousand. Humans appear. Twenty thousand. Agricultural revolution. Industrial revolution. Sixty. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Generation Anthropocene, a program where we ask the question, what does it mean to be living in the new geologic age? I'm your host, Mike Osborne, and today's interview is with David LaBelle, expert on food security and the environment. Stay tuned. My guest today is Professor Dave LaBelle, whose research interests center around modeling global food systems and their interactions with climate change. He's a professor in the Department of Environmental Earth System Science. He has multiple affiliations across campus. He's also a fellow at the Center on Food Security and the Environment, which is part of the Woods Institute for the Environment, and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Dave, welcome to Generation Anthropocene. Thanks for having me. One thing that we're trying to do is wrap our heads around climate change it's a global scale problem and we kind of start by asking a very cynical question which is why does climate change matter that's a very first world kind of perspective you know we're we're pretty insulated from a lot of the harm is going to come from biodiversity loss or, you know, changing weather patterns or, or whatever. But, you know, as, if you get past that first step of like, okay, this is real, we got to deal with climate change. The next logical leap to my mind is, well, what does that mean for food? Was that part of the process for you at all, trying to tackle some aspect of climate change?
1: Well, you know, I actually sort of backed into climate change and this was more after my, my PhD. I think I... I sort of arrived at agriculture as um, something that that needed to be done over the next thirty or forty years very well if we were going to have enough land left for the other types of um, you know ecosystem services as people call them. so I was very much focused on um, this question of how do you feed people and how do you uh, and the answer to that in my mind was how do you improve the productivity of agriculture and then in looking at the question of productivity in agriculture. One of the things that was often talked about was what what is climate change going to do? And I, you know, I actually was pretty underwhelmed um, by the evidence that was you know being cited at that point. And this was sort of towards the latter years of my PhD. And I was encouraged, in particular, by Chris Field here, to start you know expanding into that area and start looking at taking some of the quantitative techniques I had been using for other questions into the area of climate change.
0: Okay. So I want to transition a little bit into food security. And I've heard you define it, I, I think this is how a lot of people probably define it, um, by, by saying it really comes down to, to three things, availability, access, and utilization. Uh, availability makes sense to me, because that's is there a pile of grain out there? Mm-hmm. Is there food to be eaten? Access also makes sense to me. Is it, um, is it something people can get at? Do they have access to it? And third was uh, utilization. Uh, that's the one I get tripped up on a little bit because it I, I as I understand it it's uh, can a body absorb nutrients yeah. which to me is more a health issue than it is food and obviously there's there's overlap there but I wonder why that gets thrown in there with food security
1: yeah it's a great question um, you know and I don't really know the answer it is as you say it's it's more of a health issue of is the body healthy enough to retain the nutrients um, I think you know in part it might be Part of the definition, because a lot of the measures of food security, for example, um, you know, looking at child under underweight or um, under height for their age or things like that, uh, could be caused by health issues that are not you know directly related to the ability to access food, and so it's it's lumped into those categories maybe so that the. The common measures could be sort of inclusive of those types of causes, but I, I don't actually know the the real reason why those are included.
0: The the number that that also leaps out at me is how many people are in a food insecure situation. How many people suffer from a lack of food security? Uh, and it's somewhere around what one in seven, one in ten.
1: Yeah, it's about one in seven right now.
0: It's a billion people. Yeah. So there's a billion people going to bed hungry every night. Mm-hmm. Um. My reading of things is that 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 is not really about access and, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, that it is about access, that it's not about um, availability, Uh, is that we're growing enough food. It's out there. It has more to do with corrupt governments and oppressive systems and and all kinds of political issues. Is that correct?
1: Um, You know, I think it's correct in the sense that if you take the total number of calories produced in the world you divide it by the number of people in the world, the average calorie uh, availability is enough to feed a person for a year. So in that sense, you know, we have enough food in the world. Um, it's kind of similar to saying we have plenty of fresh water in the world. It's just not in the right places at the right time. And we obviously have a food system in place internationally, which you, sh- you should at least technically be able to get food from anywhere to anywhere else in the world to feed people. And so, you know, if you want to identify the main cause of food security in most food insecurity in most places, it is sort of inability of people to pay for food. But obviously, their ability to pay for food depends on the price of the food. And so it's, you know, the price of the food is going to depend on the total amount. So there's always going to be distributional issues. And it's a matter of, you know, where's that point where the price that can be paid is enough to feed, you know, to feed a person for a year.
0: This seems like an important point with the nine billion person question that you hear people raise that we're global population right now is at seven billion it's projected to be nine billion around 2050 it may stabilize there's plenty of uncertainty around that mm-hmm. but that question is not how much food can we grow or i mean certainly it is in part but
1: well i think the question right now is not can we grow enough food i mean i think it's clear that right now for seven billion people uh, we're growing enough food but that is not a guarantee that we can grow enough food for eight billion or nine billion. I think what's probably one of the most least understood aspects of agriculture is that the last 30 or 40 years have been a series of really incredible innovations um, that really transformed agriculture. And that has helped keep production up with demand. There's no guarantee that those kind of things are going to continue and and lots of people, you know, question whether we're going to be able to maintain that momentum going forward. So you know, I think in, in the first answer to the first question is um, the question of access is of primary importance right now, and it will be of continued importance. The question of do we have enough food in the world is going to be of, I think, increasing importance as we move forward. And both of those are not separate because these are both reflected in the price of food and the, and the ability of people to pay those prices, you know, from now uh, through, you know, the next few decades as we, as we grow in population.
0: So how might climate change affect food security?
1: Well, when we think about how food security is sort of the the meeting of people's ability to pay and and having enough food that the prices are low enough, I think mostly what we think about is the effects of climate on the on the availability and the price of food. That the there will be, you know, issues of climate change affecting people's livelihood, affecting their incomes directly, you know, devastating cities with with major events that will, you know, Hurt them enough to to cause their ability to pay to go down, um, but mostly what we focus on is is what happens to the availability of food, and the you know the major factors involved are things like you know more intense heat waves, more common droughts in different regions, um, lots of negative things that can happen. At the same time, we know that there are some benefits of higher CO two in the atmosphere for for plant growth directly.
0: I saw a paper you published last year where you, you identify four crops. It's uh, maize, soy, rice, and what am I for? wheat. wheat yeah. uh, and there was a figure in there that really popped out at me. It said uh, 75% of the global food supply comes from these four crops, either directly or indirectly. Uh, I guess that indirectly part is is what we feed livestock? That's right. Okay. Um, that really leaked out at me. I mean, it seems like if the purpose of science is to whittle down the variables, that's a pretty good whittling down.
1: Yeah, it's actually um, it, it's quite remarkable how much uh, of our calories we get from these four crops. It's partly a testament to how attractive these crops are for various reasons both taste and you know storability cookability yeah uh, it, it is remarkable how you know how much we can explain with just those four crops and even beyond that how much can be explained by the US alone because the US is the major producer of of corn and of soybean two of those four and actually the US is by far not irrigated. And what that means is there's a lot of variation from year to year in the U.S. So if you look at actually global calorie supply year to year, it's very tightly linked to what happens in the U.S. in terms of production.
0: This is actually something I really wanted to talk about. Why are we so good at this? What do we do here in the U.S., or what what resources do we have that make us so globally important to the food supply?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of factors, but I think you know the most fundamental ones are we have a lot of land, we have fairly favorable climate, and we have uh, an amazing amount of you know innovation and research that goes on. Um, if you compare us to a country like um, China or India, for example, they are also major powerhouses in in global agriculture, but they obviously have a lot more people, and so their net exports are are much smaller. So we're disproportionately important in the export markets because we produce uh, way more than we consume.
0: So it's, in one, on one hand, we, we're a big country. Uh, so we, just by sheer land mass, we have a kind of advantage there. We're also a big country that's not as densely populated as, say, China or India. Where else in the world, I don't know, where, where are the key kind of regions if we were to tour the globe and we really wanted to get a feel for the global food supply, where would we go?
1: Yeah that's a great question and something at the center on food security here that we um that we sort of routinely ask ourselves is if we want to understand global food security what are the key regions to understand and i think the us is certainly one for reasons we just talked about china and india both are you know huge in terms of both supply and demand um a growing one of of major importance is is south america argentina and brazil in particular are becoming uh, major exporters they have been big producers but they are increasingly um growing in importance as exporters and then you know Europe is a, is a major producer of lots of grain uh in, in particular wheat including including eastern europe and russia um so that's sort of the current situation i think if you look forward 30 or 40 years um sort of the big places to look for are one south america which i just mentioned and two africa africa has huge potential they could be sort of the next south america in terms of developing that potential but there's been lots of challenges uh to to developing that potential lots of well-known challenges well-known obstacles but there's a lot of good work going on now and you know it's it's generally said that if we are going to feed 9 billion people, it's going to have to come from large production growth in Africa, that Africa is probably going to end up being an exporter in the end if, if we really maximize our potential to to feed the world on the current or something close to the current amount of agricultural land that we have.
0: You know, something that we're doing in this conversation uh, that, that, that I got to thinking about last night is uh, throwing out countries and continents almost interchangeably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I was thinking about this. Uh, somebody relayed an anecdote to me about Correct me if if you know something about this or if I get this wrong but the the anecdote was that there was a failure of the wheat crop in Russia, and Russia is a big exporter, uh, and among other countries that they export to, Egypt was was one. And the reason I mentioned this anecdote is that I had heard that there are some claims out there that the Arab Spring uprising may have been related to some food security issues, or at least some people. It's conjecture, I'm sure. But have have you heard anything of, of that story?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, a lot of work going on specifically on what's the link between food markets and social unrest. You know, there's a group out there saying that anytime the the FAO's food price index, which is kind of an aggregate measure of how expensive food is around the world, anytime that gets above, I think it's 210 points, that there'll be a, a wave of unrest. That's basically looking at the last two episodes of unrest and seeing at what point they started. And both were in the price spikes of 2008 and 2011 in terms of uh, price changes. And and I think it is very um, instructive to see where those riots were. They were in the major wheat importing countries, which Northern Africa is basically... Like the Middle East, are major food importers, um, and so when prices for food go up, they're the ones that really feel it at the national level. Um, so Africa, I think overall, imports about sixty percent of their wheat, for example. So you know they're particularly sensitive to changes in in the wheat market, and that's you know the logic behind saying that that prices cause these types of unrest. It's also plausible that the prices were maybe, you know, part of a larger, you know, context, and that maybe it was the trigger, maybe it was the excuse. Um, it's very hard to analyze these things. in, in
0: Right. You know, it's hard to attribute, you know, yeah. a, a spike in wheat to the Arab Spring. But I, I, it, it does seem consistent. Yeah.
1: Uh, and I think where we've seen, you know, what we've learned from these, I think, hopefully, is that, you know, first of all, that food prices can increase quite quickly. That was something that 10 years ago, you know, people thought was largely something of, you know, Of history and that we wouldn't have that anymore. And the other thing is that if you, you know, increase prices, there are, I mean, this is really common knowledge throughout much of the world, but there are very big political and social implications uh, of very quick uh, price increases. And the third thing I think is really important to understand, especially in the context of climate change, is that the impacts of events don't necessarily it felt strongest where the events happen. So if Russia has a big heat wave or the US has a big drought, the populations of those countries are not necessarily going to be the ones most affected. It might be the poor urban consumers in some wheat importing country that are going to really feel the effects of those of those changes.
0: I want to return to something we talked about a second ago when we whittled it down to those four crops. We said a lot of it goes to livestock. I don't want to get bogged down into a conversation about animal rights, mm-hmm. uh, but there is a pretty strong uh, relationship between GDP and meat consumption, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of people out there who wonder how sustainable that is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely some legitimate questions about the sustainability of how much meat we consume. I mean, first of all, there's the health effects of red meat, which, you know, I, I think are, are well documented. Um, in terms of the environmental effects, I think there's no question that there are some negative environmental effects. You know, in terms of the poverty implications or the food security implications of meat consumption, um, it's it's a little trickier. I mean, I think in a lot of countries, livestock is very much a insurance policy that people have. You know, they invest in livestock. Insurance policy. Yeah, they're investing in livestock. That helps them get through lean times. You know, they'll still produce milk even if it's, you know. Not not rainy. It's a, livestock are a great way of sort of accessing very scarce resources, you know, grazing throughout lands that wouldn't produce very good crops. Um, you know, in many countries, your wealth is basically measured in how much livestock you have. And there's a very good reason for that. So livestock shouldn't be dismissed entirely. I think it is legitimate to ask how much meat we should be eating. But it's it's hard for me just as a practical matter to imagine large scale um, adoption of of sort of no meat consumption now I think more important or more um plausible is potentially a shift away from sort of the ruminant uh like red meat uh, beef categories to more poultry and and pork and eggs, which are definitely less uh if you if you look at sort of the environmental impacts of those kind of things are less uh, harmful. But it's really the red meat consumption that has the bulk of, I would say, the bulk of the environmental impacts in terms of greenhouse gas production, in terms of land use, know, change, land use of... change and water quality issues. There are definitely issues with, say, pork and poultry production. But but the the red meat consumption, as far as I understand it, is is where a, a lot of the um, very tough to deal with environmental impacts come from.
0: We're in the middle of a pretty big drought right now in the U.S. and you've been in the news. Reporters have been calling you. You were on ABC. You were on uh, PRI's The World. What can we say about the drought today? I mean, I'm I'm sure it's going to take years of analysis before we really understand the full ramifications of the current drought in the U.S. and what that means for maize production. But what do we know now?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, this drought has a lot of interesting lessons. In some ways, it makes me feel like a, a snooty academic because, you know, a lot of it is is sort of not surprising to us in terms of what we expected. You know, I think the, the drought conditions are particularly bad in part because the temperatures were unusually warm throughout the spring and early summer. I actually
0: want to interrupt with something real sure. quick that I saw in the paper I referenced earlier. That the the trends, the temperature trends in the U.S. over the last uh, what, nineteen eighty to two thousand eight, I think is the yeah. is the time period you looked at. And you compared that to the previous twenty years, so nineteen sixty to nineteen eighty. Yeah. Um, but if you look at two nineteen eighty to two thousand eight, the temperature trends in the U.S. are not all that big. Yeah, that's right. There,
1: I mean, that shocked the hell out of me. It, it was surprising. I think. It's been called uh, by a lot of people the warming hole so that the the whole world is warming. But for some reason, the U.S. and North America in general in the the summer months have not really seen a a warming trend. And we don't understand that perfectly, but I think the the leading hypothesis is just that it was – a case of decadal variability in the climate system counteracting the trend.
0: So when you say decadal variability, like sort of not year to year, but yeah. decade to decade.
1: Right. So in particular, like the, the oceans tend to be, you know, parts of the ocean will be warm one decade and then cool the next decade. And I think our best understanding of what was driving that lack of warming in the in the eastern U.S. was just natural fluctuations, which means that it could go away just as quickly as, you know, as it came. You know, so I think when we looked three years ago at the global, you know, picture of where things are warming, and we saw the U.S. not warming, we basically said that the U.S. shouldn't become complacent or or feel like this is a guaranteed future. That really the norm is to be warming quickly. And so when we see the last two years have been very warm, it's less surprising than the fact that it hadn't warmed, you know, up until that point. I would say. And then in terms of the consequences of these warming, you know, it's very much. Um, in line with with what the models have been saying which is that as you warm temperatures you're going to get um you know lower yields mostly because you're going to get increased water stress
0: so i mean one of the important points here is that we've had two really warm years in back to back so whatever stocks we had from last year which must have been depressed and stocks play a, a big role in helping us control the global food supply we we built up a deficit last year Now, this year, we're going to be dealing with that deficit plus a hot year.
1: Well, the deficit, you know, it's in terms of stocks, comes actually from before last year. It was really the last five or six years where there's just been a a great demand, um, largely driven by increased use for ethanol. And so that's been slowly depleting uh, stocks. And stocks are one of the main buffers we have in the global system. Um, And then last year... There was a decent harvest around the world, but nothing, you know, to the point where it would really replenish stocks. Prices came down a little bit, but not hugely. And then here we are again in 2012 with prices going up again when when we don't have a good harvest. I think, um, you know, both this year and last year are kind of equally instructive in terms of what happened in the U.S. because everybody's focused on this year. Um, which had very high temperatures, very low rainfall, very low yields. What was interesting last year was that we had very high temperatures, but fairly good rainfall, above average rainfall, and we still saw yields that were lower than what, you know, trend would have said they should have been. So, again, that points to the fact that it's, it's not all about rainfall. It's also about temperature. And, um, you know, the last two years, I think, are not um, unlike what we expect the U.S. to look like over the next 20 years or so.
0: I want to shift gears a little bit, because we've talked about climate change, we've talked about food production, we've talked about ethanol, uh, we've talked a little bit about, you know, precipitation, water. These are all very politically tricky realms. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I have a couple questions along those lines. One is, and and, and the other thing we've talked about is that you have made yourself very available to uh, media outlets. I'm wondering, do you get hate mail? and if so from who do you get backlash do you piss people off
1: <laughs> yeah i think you know it's it's inevitable you get you get hate mail uh you know for example the other day i was interviewed by abc in the morning and then about 3:30 in the afternoon i got some uh email just saying uh there's no global warming you liberal idiot or something and i figured well the abc thing must have aired you know on the <laughs> east coast by now <laughs> um so you, you get things like that. I You know, my personal experience is that I've, you know, I've, I guess I've been um, fairly cautious in what I've said in terms of trying to communicate things. I get sort of equally criticized probably from both sides of it. I'm not squarely in, I think, the the climate change area where you get the most, I think, vitriol in terms of saying whether or not humans are causing climate change. Um, a lot of my work is not as much on that sort of blame attribution type of question as on the what the impacts might be and and yes you know it's easy to find negative feedback but um, and I don't think um, I've ever been one to be intimidated by you know people trying to who are explicitly trying to intimidate you um, I just don't think that it doesn't concern me too much. Maybe that'll change. But
0: um... actually, I wonder, yeah. I really wonder about that. And that was sort of my next question is that, you know, if we look at uh, climate change or if we look at tobacco use a generation before and how these things became political and how certain very powerful institutions really confuse the public on this stuff, if I had to point to a small you know group of issues that are that have that are at risk of being politicized to that degree, in the next few decades, I would look at food security.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, you're right, that there's a lot of potential for big political battles to be played out with food security. You know, I think that I think climate is is unique in lots of ways in that there was a very, um, you know, a very clear interest in the in the question of our humans causing climate change. I don't think that there's any, um, as far as I can think of right now, there's no very large interest in maintaining hunger around the world. You know, there aren't, um, now there are certainly large interests, for example, in maintaining um, ethanol policies, right? Or sure. or um, in maintaining climate policies that relate to, to agriculture. But, you know, in, those are each a, part of the food security picture. Um, the other the other thing is that even though there are interests sort of around ethanol, for example, there are equally strong interests in the livestock sector. And and so the, there's not as much of a concentrated, I think I would say, um, interest in the area of food production in general. We'll see. I think the most interesting thing to me over the last couple of years is to see how interested the um, intelligence community and the military community has become in food security because they see very real risks overseas to declines in, in food security you know a, a deterioration uh, of food security around the world to them is a very risky national security picture
0: um, okay so I have two more questions mm-hmm. um, first is a lot of people have become interested in food issues via the sustainability, slow food movement. I know this doesn't really relate to the kinds of research questions you ask and, and address, especially since sustainable food and organic is is a pretty small share of the market. But I'm wondering if you have anything else that that an audience that is interested in those kinds of issues might want to know.
1: Well, I mean, I my approach to all these types of questions in general has been that we are open to, I should say I am, but in general at the Center on Food Security here, you know, we don't rule out any alternative types of of systems, but they have sort of uh, certain tests that they need to pass. And I think, you know, one test, as we were talking about before, is are they sort of based on a rational or reasonable expectations for what people will actually do? And, you know, on the livestock question, are people really going to give up eating meat? Now, my answer to that would be no. If somebody can convince me that maybe there's, you know, a substitute for meat that could be made and tastes just as good and, and people will love it, you know, we can, can be convinced. But that's a sort of a test that has to be passed. And the other test that really, to me, has to be passed is do the numbers add up in terms of feeding a global population? Mm. And I think, you know, people like Michael Pollan are really good at making people realize where their food comes, making people realize the, you know, the externalities associated with different practices. but Anecdotes can be very misleading if they are from, you know, in California, for example, we have, you know, great climate, great soils. We can probably do organics with lots of things very well. But, you know, Africa is probably the biggest example of organic agriculture out there. There's a lot of people there who are not fertilizing, who are using just, you know, livestock power, livestock manure. And and the result is very low productivity, very persistent poverty. Um, so the question is, can you do the system you propose in enough places that it will be able to provide incomes for people to make the, you know, to make it socially and, and economically sustainable? And will it provide enough food to be agronomically sustainable to feed the numbers of people that we have? With the alternative being that if you can't feed the numbers of people, but you still want that system, then you have to clear a whole new large areas of land.
0: You have to cut down trees to plant crops.
1: And if you, exactly. And if you, if you want that system, you have to be explicit that it comes with that kind of um, environmental effect.
0: I do think that a lot of people also come to it. I mean, there's a variety of reasons to come to the slow food movement. Maybe it's animal rights. Maybe it's you want to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. Maybe it's because you like gardening, you like Mm -hmm. being outside, or you Mm want to be connected with the community. That actually, I think maybe that last one's the most important, is that people in in a world of seven billion and heading for nine billion more and more people feel like they don't have much power. They don't have much control over what the planet's doing and how we're shaping it. And I think a very compelling case can be made that we vote more with our dollars than we do with our votes, and that this is a way of uh, buying sustainable, buying organic, buying farmer's market food is a way of expressing that power. Whether or not it's scalable, I guess it's still an open question, but I, I, I wonder what some of the other big hurdles are. If you wanted to dream big about how big sustainable agriculture could go, where would you start?
1: It's a good question. I think the place I would start is to try to distinguish or unpack a little bit what um, either the slow food or the sustainable or organic food movements are about. Because I definitely think there are some aspects in there that are potentially more scalable than other aspects. And I think people should be careful, for example, not to confuse vegetables and fruits with calorie, you know, the, the main grains that provide most of our calories. I think it's perfectly sensible to try to um, to, to have vegetables and fruits, you know, I, I try to grow as much as I can or buy as much as I can from the farmer's market, but I don't go to the farmer's market to buy flour and, and rice and things like that. And maybe some people do, but, but at a very, you know, high price premium. You know, for me, I think the, the thing that I try to get undergraduates not to do here, at least as a first step, is to not equate organic and sustainable. That organic has a very particular definition. Sustainable is a particular concept, and they are not identical. And I think it, when people start to think about what is a sustainable global food system look like, it has a lot of the characteristics of our current food system. I don't think you can do a sustainable global food system without synthetic fertilizer, for example
0: to the extent that people are interested in sustainable agriculture, I think the most compelling arguments are when you make it about social justice issues. But that tying those things together is really tricky.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I I think that my view of the world, I guess, is that when it comes down to it, people want to eat. People want, you know, energy. They want Convenience, they don't want a hard life when it comes down to it for most people of the world, you know at the income levels that they're at or will be at for the remaining you know decades, it's just not going to ever overtake the concerns of people in terms of their immediate needs and so for me as i as I said at the beginning, um I do care about those things, but I've always thought the most practical way to preserve those things is to make sure that those things like food security are insured. I, I think that, for me, the, the question is less, can we produce enough food in the world? But can we produce enough food without destroying the environment in the process? In the big picture, 30, 40 years from now, you know, we're either going to have large chunks of the Amazon growing soybeans and, and other things, or we're not. And we're going to have very high yields in Africa, producing enough food for the continent and maybe for export, or we're not. And if we're not, then I just don't see much of a chance for things like, you know, carbon payments for keeping forests intact. I don't see those as having much of a chance if we haven't met the basic needs of people.
0: Uh, Well, Professor David LaBelle, this has been very informative. Thanks so much for coming in today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank Pam Madsen and Stanford School of Earth Sciences for their support. As always, a big thanks to Tom Hayden for guidance and inspiration. Thanks to Maserati for use of their song, Monoliths. And thanks to KZSU Stanford 90.1. You can find all of our past episodes at stanford.edu slash group slash anthropocene and you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at GenAnthropocene. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Where would you draw the line?